I'm I, I'm rolling, so you guys can hit record whenever you're ready. I am rolling. Okay, I Great. am too. And it's picking me this up. This is CNN. Hoot! What does your vision tell of, wise Merlin? My vision tells me France will be lost by a woman and restored by a woman. Hoot! Maybe you should stop eating those mushrooms that grow by the swamp. Don't blame the swamp mushrooms. I see a woman in armor and a white horse, a battle on a river and a castle reclaimed. Hoot! The prophecy has been foretold! Hoot! Fast forward 800 years to a small village in occupied northeastern France. And then uh, one of you can be... Should I be Jacques? Yeah. Should, I, should we do this in French accents? Of course. Please say no. Of course. Oh, okay, fine. Uh, All right. She has your eyes. And she has your... Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, can we do... Can we try it without him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. All right. All right. She has your eyes. And she has your nose. And she has your knack for seeing and interpreting holy visions of grand instruction. Oh, she does, doesn't she? I see St. Michael! Hello, everyone, and welcome to History's a Joke, a podcast where we deep dive into different stories from history. This week, I am joined by Doug and Stefania. Neither of them have heard this story before, so they will be asking questions along the way and helping me tell this tale to its fullest comedic effect. Today, we will be discussing the Maid of Orleans, the Savior of France, a canonized saint, La Pucelle d'Orléans, Jeanne d'Arc, Joan of Arc, one of history's greatest and most mysterious characters. The question that no one can answer, how did a teenage girl in the Middle Ages with no formal combat or academic education find the heir to the French throne and lead an army to victory against the English? Let's find out. To truly tell this tale correctly, we need to give some backstory. I will try to keep it brief since hearing about all the kings and queens and diplomacy and battles can get very tedious, and in Europe there was so much going on, we have to draw the line somewhere or else we'll keep going back in time until we're doing Merlin's birth scene. Joan was born during and later helped win crucial battles in the Hundred Years' War. France, 1328, the country is still crippled from the Black Plague outbreak years before. Charles IV dies with no male heirs to the throne. France had recently created a new rule that didn't allow for female heirs. And so how recently was this rule? Like two generations ago. Okay, yeah. So it's not like... Okay, they yeah, just but, but, did and, it. Enough, like there was... Yeah, but like it was a couple of generations. Like, you know, maybe there was... Had there been a change in, in monarchy like or in, in, in ruler, you know, mm-hmm. since then? Okay. Okay. I believe and, it had been done. Someone was paranoid that their distant relative was going to get the throne or something. So they were like, okay, let's yeah. whittle this down. Oh my and God, classic scenario. So they pulled their book deal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now the French crown, the largest kingdom in Western Europe, was up for grabs. In England, the ruling king, Edward III, is from the house Plantagenet, a house with French roots, obviously. Edward is also Charles IV's closest male heir. In the Middle Ages in Europe, everybody's a little French. 
Even the English are French. <laughs> See, the English royalty and rulers of the British Isles are not native to the land. They're Normans, a blend of Vikings and French natives. Mm -hmm. The Normans conquered the British Isles in 1066, taking it from the previous invaders, the Anglo-Saxons, who came to Britain after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Exactly. Well, that's, And that's where we define the break between Old English and Middle English. Oh. Is, yeah, is the, the, uh, the Norman invasion. Yeah. Interesting. I did not mm -hmm. pay attention enough in... AP world history, obviously. So the English royalty was of French ancestry and still had lands and royal houses in France. All this to say, the English are French and the French are English and they all can't get along. <laughs> so the English king, Edward III, by declaration of his mother, Isabelle of France, who is also Charles's sister. Isabella France? Isabelle of France. Oh, <laughs> okay. Isabella like, France. Really? The queen That's of France. Incredible. Is, yeah. <laughs> Isabel of France. By declaration of his mother, Isabel of France, yeah. who is also Charles's sister, claims the French crown. The French reject this claim and instead choose a quote-unquote native Frenchman, the male cousin to Charles, Philip, the Count of Valois. Okay. At first, this is, I know, I'm, this is a lot. This is just the setup. There's a lot of Edwards and Phillips as we go along. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> hey, this is great. This is... Edwards and Phillips, Phillips and Edwards. Is there an Henri somewhere? I'm sure. He, he's the cook. So Edward's English, Philip is French. At first, Edward didn't challenge Philip to the throne, but naturally they started an argument and Philip confiscated Edward's lands in France. This angered Edward and made him reclaim the title to the French throne. The Hundred oh. Years' War began. I'm sure you all retained every word of that. and I did. And, every word. Okay, I'll, be, I'll be acing the test. <laughs> I got a part of it. There was someone named Henri, right? That is that right. Was... <laughs> and he was the cook. Uh-huh. Yep. Fast forward 100 years past more Phillips, Charles, Henrys, to the early 15th century when the king of France suffers from delusions and visions. Oh my God, suffers? No, gift. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Was gifted with extreme delusions and yeah, terrible yeah. visions. <laughs> drove him insane <laughs> and even made him attack his own uh, soldiers at one point. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. Henry V is the king of England and Joan of Arc is growing up in English-occupied France. Joan was born at the end of a temporary peace in the war. Just a few years after her birth, Henry V resumes the war and sails to France with over 10,000 soldiers. His campaign was successful and soon he occupied all of northern France and a stronghold on the southwestern coast. However, similarly to how the war started, Charles VI and Henry V suddenly died within two months of each other. This left Charles VII, the French desired heir to the crown, and Henry V's nine-month-old son, the King of England, and technically also of France. Oh, perfect. Okay, so there you go. Why in the world have we not talked more about a baby king? Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I just want you to know, okay, my again, I did not read the script ahead of time. My prediction was true. There is at least one Henry here. Yes. Right? So, yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh my god, baby king. This idea did not test well in the French market. Yeah, Let's right. Just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> right before all of the kings died, Isabeau, the queen of France, signed a treaty which gave the succession of the French throne to England and Henry V instead of her own son. Ooh. Selling out, basically, I mean, kind of selling out the French people. Yeah. This, many think, was the first part of Merlin's prophecy, mm. France being lost by a woman. Oh, with wow. Henry the, 
Did you have something to say? Um, no, I said, oh, wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> see, <laughs> but see, I want... Now, hold on a second. I want to know something here. Like, yeah. historically speaking, I mean, what, what, was there a, an actual historical figure named Merlin? I mean, was that a, right. was there a person in Merlin? Sure. So the Merlin situation was, unfortunately, there is no one Merlin and there is no one okay. Merlin that existed. Merlin mm. is is about anywhere between three to ten different uh, priests and advisors and different kinds of alchemists and people in the, you know, I, I don't remember what time, between like 600 and 900 or something. My God, I did not know that. And yeah. like Merlin, the name Merlin is from a specific like crazy old monk who would like forage for shrooms in the woods or whatever. Um, I think Merlin Wilt or Merlin the Wild was his name. And there was that's I think kind of then his name became the Merlin. And the the huh. the closest character that people can find that was like Merlin existed hundreds of years after the King Arthur, you know, and, and those people the, that were okay. the real King Arthur. So they weren't even around at the same time, unfortunately. These are real prophecies and are real French folklore. Mm. Right. All I know is that Merlin wore a big blue hat and he had an owl for a friend and he went to Bermuda. Joan lived in such a remote part of France, she was technically in the French side of a county in the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. The town was called Dom Rémy, and it's often said Joan's parents were peasants. But honestly, they weren't the kind of peasants you might think of. They owned 50 acres of land, livestock, possibly, a two-story house, the largest in the town, and Joan's father was a village official, helping collect taxes and lead the local watch. Dom Rémy was a town loyal to the French crown despite being surrounded by English and English allied forces and technically not being in the traditional kingdom of France even. Oh. I'm still just amazed that they had two-story houses back then. That's just a marvel. During this time, the English and French soldiers allied with the English, the Burgundians. So the, the Burgundians are French natives that are soldiers fighting with the English. Yeah. Okay. No, that... Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. So the Burgundians and English both conducted raids on the villages throughout France to force the will of the French people to the English rule. Joan and her town were victims of these types of raids several times during her childhood. These were scorched earth raids where the point was to destroy people's livelihoods as well as their lives. People were killed and assaulted, houses were burned, and livestock were slaughtered. Ooh. But it's not like a war. It's like literally just like a terror event. Yeah, it's like a terrorist act, yeah. It's not even war. It's it's strictly civilians because armies were so small back then. They needed to be mustered and built in, in the instance they were needed, as we'll learn. Basically, it was, yeah, like a hearts and minds campaign in the worst way possible. Right. Yeah. Joan survived these attacks and by all accounts thrived in Dom Remy. Her early life existed in two parts helping her father work the farmland and learning more traditional female occupations, such as spinning wool and sewing. She never learned how to read or write, and the only knowledge Joan would have had access to, beyond religious texts, would have been what was known in the town at the time. Joan's mother, Isabel, was extremely religiously devout, and passed this devotion on to Joan. There was also evidence that Isabel made a pilgrimage to Rome when she was younger. This would have been an incredible feat at the time, and a testament to Isabel's determination and skill as a young person. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I just got to say, though, I can barely, like, walk to work 
Whether Joan was doing manual labor in the fields or spinning wool at home, her religious piousness influenced everything she did. She made herself the town's religious enforcer and would chastise anyone who wasn't following the religious customs of the time, Whoa. including the town's church warden, who would get an earful from Joan if he was late ringing the church bells. Oh my God, she's such a Karen. I can't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she shows up at the party and you're like, oh, okay. What's up, Joan? Glad you came. Thought I gave you one last number on the address there. Well, there's only five addresses left in town after the last raid. She gained a reputation from her peers as a religious zealot, even in the Middle Ages, where everyone was already a religious zealot by today's standards. <laughs> Joan frequently spent weekends traveling to a neighboring chapel. She refused to dance and constantly went to confession, sometimes multiple times a day. Oh my god, what was she even confessing for? Just guessing that the priest is just like, oh my god. This is interesting because she by far went to confessions more frequently than any of the other townspeople. Even as a child, her sense of guilt and sin was so great, she felt she needed to consistently confess to clear her conscience and cleanse her soul. Oh, I'm just nice. exhausted for her. From my research, her religious enthusiasm was a form of joy for Joan. Okay. It was not done purely out of fear of godly retaliation. This was also at a time in which it was common knowledge that women, virgins in particular, could receive visions from the heavens, including visions of the future. Mm. From her mother, Joan grew up hearing stories of these women. In her late teenage years, Joan refused to enter a marriage arranged by her father and even went to court over the issue after her prospective husband sued her. Joan defended herself in court, arguing that she had taken a holy vow of chastity and she should not be forced into a marriage against her will. She won. Wow. That's pretty cool. Charles VII was in hiding from the English as he ruled the southern half of France. His coronation needed to be held at Riance. Doug, do you know, to my best, what I could find, it's like Riance. I can't even say it. Riance. Riance. That's my best guess. That That's beautiful, Doug. Hey, th thanks. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Every time that that needs to be said, I'll just take that clip of Doug. Yes. Which was deep in the English-occupied France. This meant Charles was technically the Dauphin, or the heir to the throne, but not an anointed king. This rule applied to any king of France, and neither of the Henrys or Charles VII had made it to... Yes and therefore there was no anointed king of France. Mm -hmm. Thus the war dragged on. So a king of France, once you claimed it, you needed to go to Riance and be anointed king there in okay. that chapel. That was the only way okay. to truly- right. Coronation needs to be yes. held at, the, yeah. So you sense. can say you're the king of France all day long. If you don't get to Riance and hold the ceremony and have a priest do the thing, mm. then you're not the king. In 1425, the French soldiers allied with the English, the Burgundians, killed all the livestock in Domremy and burned the town down. Oh, good. Right after this traumatic event, Joan's first vision appears. Okay. She was 13 years old and working in her father's garden one day when suddenly... Oh my, what is this bright light before me? Joan, do not be afraid. Tis I, St. Catherine. And I... Saint Margaret. And me, Saint Michael. And what have I done to summon three saints? Joan, you are not in trouble. You have done everything right. That is why we are here. Continue to pray every day and confess your sins and practice good Christianity. And no sex. I would never. Now, 
We must go. Will I ever see you again? Oh, <laughs> you'll see us again. <laughs> These visions continued for the next three years. Joan said they would come with a blinding bright light, and she could barely make out the faces and features of the saints. St. Margaret and St. Catherine were both martyred virgin saints. She did claim to, at one point, embrace the holy appearances and even smell them. Wow. These visions would only happen when things were quiet and Joan was left alone. Oh. Or in some cases, the visions were triggered by the sound of the village church bells. Hmm. Joan's devotion to religion and her want to see and learn from the saints caused her to increasingly spend time alone and in quiet areas in an attempt to induce the visions. But she never told anyone about the saints, not even her priest whom she regularly confessed to. Hmm. In 1428, after another brutal Burgundian attack, Joan, now 16, is standing in her garden, facing the burned remains of her church. She has a vision that would change her life forever and change the fate of France. My saints, what are your commands? Joan, you must drive the English out of France once and for all. Now is your time. You must break the siege on Orleans and clear a path to, oh boy, France. Reims, Reims, Reims. I'm going to say Reims. Is that cool? You must break the siege on Orleans. Is it Orleans too? Orleans, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. You must break the siege on Orleans and clear a path to Reims so that the Dauphin can be crowned King of France. Ride to Vaucouleurs and secure garrison guards to aid you in your travel to Chinon to find the Dauphin, Charles VII. The Dauphin will supply you with an army to break the siege of Orléans and save France. If Orléans falls, all of France will fall. Tell your parents you're going over to help the neighbor's wife give birth. That's a likely excuse. But what will I do the next day when there's no baby? Uh, I just got a text. Hang on a second. Joan wept. The vision was so beautiful. Um, I also love, I've been watching a ton of Sopranos, and I sound like the, uh, like, Ukrainian woman that he sleeps with. <laughs> Joan followed the order of the saints, lied to her parents, and convinced a relative to take her to the fortress at Vaucouleurs. Who goes there? It is I, Joan. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> okay. It is I, Joan. And I ask you to let me join your forces and take me to Dauphin. <laughs> <laughs> Take her back to the home of their father and give her a beating. That was an actual quote, by the way. No! <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Joan returned to Domremy and made a decision that would aid her for the rest of her life. She started telling people about her visions. As I mentioned before, female visionaries were common in French culture. And although Joan's visions were extreme by any account, they were received by the people in Domremy and soon the surrounding areas as well. Remember that Merlin prophecy? It was handed down for 800 years and each generation added something to it until it became more specific, citing a virgin from the region of Lorraine, the general area of France where Joan lived. This pre-existing folklore and newer, more detailed versions allowed Joan to get a foothold in the minds of the people of the region. It was also during this period when Joan defended herself at her marriage trial. 
During the course of the trial, Joan also spoke of her visions as further evidence of her holy duty to remain a virgin and save France. Unfortunately, the word of Joan and her visions spread as far as the Burgundian territory in northern France. So yet again, Joan's village was attacked by the Burgundians in an attempt to dissuade Joan from taking any action to aid Charles VII. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Joan, having survived another brutal attack, returned to the fortress at Vaucouleur, Vaucouleur, oh fucking hell, and this time with the people of the region on her side. But more importantly, she had also convinced several of the commander's soldiers that she was indeed sent by God to save the king and France. I must be at the king's side, and there will be no help for us if not from me. Although I would rather have remained spinning wool at my mother's side, I must go, and I must do this thing, for the Lord wills that I do so. Well, she certainly looks like an angel to me, boss. If she is not an angel, you idiot. She's a prophet. Tell me, what news of battle do your visions give you? They tell me that Dufan's army have on this day suffered a great reverse near an Orleans. The city will soon fall if we do not leave now. Let's just wait until we receive word from this hypothetical French defeat and see if you are indeed correct. And they did. They waited for several days until news of the French defeat reached Vaucouleur. Joan was correct. The very next day, Joan and a military escort rode for Chinon to meet Charles VII. That is cool. There's a lot going on here, right? Yeah. So Charles is the one who should be king. He cannot go to Riance. Because it's occupied by England. He can't go there and become the king. Now to get to Chinon, the troop had to ride through Burgundy and English occupied lands. Traveling through enemy territory was a risk in itself. Add traveling with a young woman and it became even more dangerous for the soldiers and for Joan. It is said that it was the suggestion of the soldiers traveling with Joan that she cut her hair and dress in men's clothes to minimize any suspicion. I was gonna say, I feel like I have that like vision of her, yeah. They were the ones to supply Joan with the clothes. However, there are accounts she later asked for the fanciest men's garb. Later we will learn she really leaned into this aspect of her new life, and it would later become the reason she was put to death. <gasps> Oh, no. But flash forward hundreds of years and uh, never mind. Uh, Don't flash forward. On the nearly 200 mile journey, Joan kept up with the professional soldiers, riding as hard as them, sleeping alongside them, adopting their mannerisms. When Joan arrived at Chinon, Charles refused to see her. Charles thought she was the same as the prophets who had come to him before, and possibly crazy, as she was breaking a Deuteronomy rule against wearing men's clothes, something that was odd for Joan, who was so strict about religious doctrine. After two days, Charles agreed to meet Joan, but possibly only as a prank and a bit of entertainment at her expense. Charles dressed as a common person in his court and stood amongst the crowd while another person sat at the throne. Joan was called in to meet the Dauphin. Oh, Joan, you can come in now. It is you, my king. (gasps) How did you know? God told me. So what just happened here, though, is that she came in and then she was like pointed out the real guy. Yes, that is the official account and record. That's so cool because it's not like she like checked his Insta beforehand. Yeah. According to all accounts, Joan had never seen Charles before and walked right up to the disguised Dauphin, ignoring the imposter dressed as Charles. This stunt 
plus Joan's physical appearance and obvious days of hard riding impressed the Dauphin and the court. Before Joan could be fully believed and allowed into the Dauphin's inner circle, a series of tests were to be conducted. Firstly, Joan's status as a virgin was confirmed by nuns. Oh boy. This was imperative as the accepted belief was that only virgins could receive prophecies from God. Then she was questioned by theologians for three weeks to determine whether she was indeed divinely instructed. Joan, fresh out of court, went head to head with the theologians and soon received their stamp of approval. They did not determine whether she was divinely inspired, but they did determine that there was a high probability that there was a divine nature to her mission. Joan also had a private meeting with the Dauphin where she apparently revealed things about his life that no one but Charles and God could know. Mm. Charles too emerged from the meeting convinced Joan was the real deal. There were two potential outcomes. Joan was indeed sent by God, and therefore the Dauphin must listen to her, or she was sent by the devil and she was a heretic. Uh. Seeing the siege of Orléans as a test of Joan's visions, and with their faith in God, they sent Joan and an army to attempt to lift the six-month siege of Orléans. Okay. Wow. Joan arrived outside of Orléans with reinforcements on April 29th. She was given a suit of armor, a white horse, and a custom banner to wield into battle. Nice. The banner contained images of her own design, the Trinity fleur-de-lis of Charles VII and the names of Jesus and Mary. Joan was briefly trained in medieval battle tactics prior to arriving in Orléans. Joan never removed her armor during the journey. This left her overheated and exhausted by the time she arrived. Oof. The French military commanders at Orléans at first excluded Joan from becoming too involved in the battle strategies, knowing that she had zero siege warfare training. Joan, however, still attended every war council meeting. The troops that traveled to Orléans with Joan were loyal to her and convinced of her message, huh. as they had come at the behest of the Dauphin's call to aid Joan. The man in charge of the city of Orléans was literally called the Bastard of Orléans. He did not believe in Joan and was the main reason she was sidelined upon her arrival. And she shows up like steaming, like after this long ride. And he's like, this is the thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She smells bad. Soon, however, the soldiers, the commanders, and the townspeople of Orleans all believed Joan was sent by God to save the city. And the bastard had no choice but to allow her presence on the battlefield. That's really cool. Joan also played a crucial role in uplifting the morale of the soldiers and the people of Orleans. She spent a lot of time guiding supply convoys to the city and distributing food to the townspeople and the soldiers. She also helped hand out the soldiers' paychecks, uh -huh. something that I'm sure helped with her ability to persuade the soldiers to stop doing ungodly things, such as cursing, drinking, gambling, and engaging in prostitution. There was no greater example of this than Joan's relationship with the man in charge of the military operations, Lahir. This was his nickname, possibly from the English who called him the Higher God. Lahir was a soldier of fortune who dedicated his life to waging war and getting paid for it. He was the model of a rough soldier. He frequently engaged in all the behavior that Joan despised. However, he refrained from it when in her presence. The two of them must have made quite the image, the battle-hardened career soldier and the teenager in a fresh suit of armor. Quick side note, another notable character in Joan's army was Gilles de Ray, an important ally and commander in the army. However, Gilles later confessed to being a child serial killer. Oh boy. What? And the infamous folk legend of Bluebeard was based on him. Oh my gosh. I read a little about this guy and it's way worse than you can imagine. Was he a serial killer of children or was he a serial killer as a child? No, no. The, the worst one. 
On May 4th, Joan was resting at camp outside of Orléans, and suddenly her visions appeared. Joan, awake! You must attack the English immediately! Joan called for her troops to mobilize, and they found a battle was indeed in progress. The French forces were about to attack an English fort outside of Orléans. The sight of Joan in her white horse and banner galloping down the hill to the battlefield with her troops in tow was an incredible and inspiring image. The exhausted French troops got the morale boost they needed to overpower the English and take the fort. They took another English fort in the same manner the next day. After Joan's victories, the rumor that Joan was a witch and the French success was due to her black magic spread throughout the English forces. Uh, Did you hear about this witch that came from? Oh, so yeah, yeah, so I can see that I can see that spreading pretty quickly. The French were just one final battle away from lifting the siege of Orléans, an attack on the main English forces surrounding the city. Joan, Lahir, and the rest of the French forces bombard the English stronghold at the bridge over the Loire River to the city of Orléans. Cannon fire and precision arrows were the key weapons on the battlefield. Huge lead balls from both sides flew across the battlefield, destroying anything in their path. After a day of attempts to take the stronghold, the French float the idea of starving the English out. Upon hearing this, Joan grabs a ladder and heads for the stronghold. Soldiers see her and follow with their own scaling ladders. Joan reaches the fortress wall. She trades her ladder for her banner and waves it above her head, cheering on the French soldiers scaling the wall. Wow. This is essentially the most dangerous way to take the fortress. Yeah. Joan stood out on the battlefield and was stagnant at the base of the wall, making herself an easy target for an English arrow, which pierced her between her helmet and chest armor. Oh my gosh. Joan is removed from the, I mean, that they, they know where to shoot. So it's not super amazing I she guess. was hit there. They're aiming for that spot in between your yeah, helmet but, like, and your I mean, chest. Yeah, but that she was hit. I'm, oh, yes, I'm more yeah. woe at like well, our they heroine knew, just got shot. They knew who she was. They were probably trying to kill her. Joan is removed from the battlefield and the English taunt and shout that they have killed the French witch. Oh. The French momentum stalls. The combat surgeons remove the arrow from Joan's shoulder by pulling it through the other side. Oh, that's metal. Just hours later, Joan returns to the battlefield. Yeah. Insistent, she finished the attack. At the sight of her return, the French soldiers cheer and scale the wall, sending the English soldiers fleeing over the bridge and into the gatehouse, which the French took that evening. That's awesome. This is the power of morale. And of a good story. It's the power of a good story. It's yeah. both the story they've been telling for 800 years and the story they've been telling for eight days. The next day, Joan simply assembles her loyal army en masse in front of the remaining English forces in the English retreat, uh. leaving the city to the French. <laughs> Yay! In just four days, Joan had broken the six-month siege of Orléans and saved France from the imminent English control. This confirmed Joan as a messenger from God and a hero of the French people. In a few months, she had gone from an unknown teenager in rural France to a bona fide superstar. I just love that it was like literally she showed up and just climbed the wall. Like it Mm -hmm. wasn't even like she was like, and then they spent months like figuring out tactically like what to do. She like literally picked up a horse and was like, I'll fucking do it. Like I'll (laughs) climb the wall. Joan, you have completed your first task. Now go back to the Dauphin and take him to the Reims to be anointed King of France. It's the only place we keep the holy anointing oils, apparently. The French commanders are saying we should pursue the English in their retreat. 
to ensure their defeat. You cannot allow that, Joan, for today is Sunday, and the day must be devoted to the Lord. Then I shall weep over the dead English soldiers, for we have spilt their blood in the name of God. This wasn't a vision per se, but Joan's devotion to Sunday being a day of rest allowed the English to retreat from Orléans unharmed. As Joan rode back to take the Dauphin to Reyes, his court began to envy Joan's power and influence on the soon-to-be king. They advised Charles to wait a while before traveling with Joan to Reyes. There were English troops stationed all along the way to Reyes, so the path had to be cleared before Charles could get to Reyes. This is exactly what Joan did. She took English garrison after garrison. Joan was so effective, the rumor amongst the English of Joan being sent by the devil began to grow. This was the only explanation as to how this young girl could consistently defeat the English army. Oh man. Joan ensured that her armies never looted or sexually assaulted during their conquering. Her changes to the army had made the French military so popular, thousands more enlisted during Joan's command. Wow. This also caused a point of tension between Joan and Charles, as he was not able to pay all the new enlistees and feared what would happen as Joan became more and more revered and the military was largely loyal to her and her message. Wow. Uh. At this point, Joan would wear only men's clothes and sleep alongside her soldiers, long after she could have returned to her traditional clothes and taken a large private area for herself. More English-controlled cities surrendered to Joan's army, and the French people helped resupply the army as it traveled throughout France, including during one siege where the townspeople had grown an extra-large stock of produce after the town friar had been warning about the soon-coming end of the world. This same friar examined Joan, initially skeptical of her. He threw holy water on her to see what would happen. Soon, like all before him, he quickly became convinced Joan was a saint and a messenger of God. Oh my god. There you go. The holy water didn't cause her to die. Yeah, and surprise <laughs> holy water attack, like, out of nowhere. She's, like, just getting fruit. Yeah. Soon the path to Reyes was clear, and on July 16th, 1429, Joan and Charles entered Reyes for his coronation. He was crowned king of France the next day with Joan by his side, finally completing her mission from God. Even with the coronation of a new king, it was Joan who garnered the most attention. Upon being crowned king, Charles took his army on a victory journey through France and then retreated south instead of staying in the territory Joan had just liberated. She feared this would cause the newly freed townspeople to lose their allegiance to France if the English and Burgundians were to reinvade the area. Joan also watched Charles engage in diplomacy as he was attempting to deal with the Burgundians and their territories. Joan greatly disapproved of Charles' idea of letting the Burgundians keep their land given to them by the English and possibly not even needing to call Charles King. Ooh. And it's personal, because these are the same people who ruined her town. On the other side, Joan also hated the idea that the conflict was now turning into a civil war, and she soon might be fighting disloyal French people instead of the English. Interesting. And then all this business about the civil war, she must have really just been going through so much at the time, you know? It's, it's incredible, the pressure she would have been under. And she probably hasn't talked to her mom in so long. Isabel, yeah. Joan, you have seen the siege at Orléans lifted, town after town liberated, and Charles crowned King of France. God is grateful for your work. Now you must continue to drive the English out of their remaining territory in France. Paris must be next. My saints, you had such detailed and specific orders for me before. 
Please tell me how to accomplish my mission. <laughs> Coming off a little Russian. Uh, you know, just go do it. Joan's vision slowed after Charles was crowned king, almost to a stop. They no longer had detailed orders for her to follow, but just the general message of get rid of the English. With things becoming increasingly complicated and her visions less clear, Joan set out to liberate Paris, the largest and most heavily fortified city in France. I'm not surprised her visions like went away. She's like just with people now. She doesn't have any like clarity because she's not by herself. There you go. That's true. Yeah. Joan and her army attacked Paris on September 8th, 1429. The fighting was fierce with consistent English crossbow attacks from the fortified walls of Paris. Joan was struck in the leg by a crossbow bolt and lay in the French trenches until she could be carried away from the front lines. Her banner carrier was literally pinned to the ground by crossbow bolts. When he lifted his visor in an attempt to remove the bolts from his feet, he was hit in the face. Oh, uh. God. That's how thick these uh. things are coming down. Joan was eventually carried away, and the next day Charles ordered the army to retreat with no money to pay for a longer attack and seeing the near victory instead as a defeat. Oh. By the end of the month, Charles would disband the French army altogether. My God. Whoa. He was done. Wow. He had no money. Damn. The army was too big, and he felt that what they had done was good enough, and he can live with a half and half, and no need to go on. They should have went with the baby king. <laughs> Quick side note anecdote prostitutes would often follow the armies around getting work each time the army stopped to make camp right joan obviously hated this and would often personally chase the prostitutes away oh my god joan <laughs> right before the attack on paris joan was chasing one prostitute out of camp when she struck the prostitute with the flat side of her sword joan was armed with a sword from the church of saint catherine of fierbois and it was believed to be lucky and contained special powers huh the magical sword broke upon impact <gasps> with the prostitute's backside. Whoa. The shattering of the sword bummed everybody out and made Charles <laughs> believe the attack was doomed. Oh my gosh. This probably led to him rushing to call off the attack. He also didn't have the supplies or money for a lengthy siege of Paris. But very interesting, again, with the mythology and the, you know, yeah. belief in the folklore. She had this magical sword that had been around for yeah. so long and she breaks it on a prostitute's ass. Oh my God. <laughs> the day before the attack. Another factor in the French defeat at Paris was the army's growing complacency. Mm. Their frequent and easy victories, coupled with the belief that God was helping, left them with little need to try at all. After Paris, Joan and Charles continued to grow apart. Charles even started getting prophecies from another visionary, <gasps> who said Charles and the Burgundians would soon make peace. Joan insisted that war could only be the answer. Charles, however, did make a treaty with the Burgundians leaving Paris in English control. Joan and her family were made minor nobles, and her town was relieved from any taxation. Wow. Oh. Okay. People from all over would write Joan, asking her opinion on anything from political issues of the day to wars across the world, to which pope to support, there were two at the time, and asking why, if God was on her side, did she fail to take Paris? Mm. Joan spent most of her time dictating letters, all the while refusing to return home and officially retire from the military. Joan was still convinced that more war was needed to fully accomplish her orders from God. Finally, she was given a mission, not from God, but from the higher-ups in the military. Save a small town from an English and Burgundian attack. This is such a classic narrative, like this whole this whole story, you know? She's given multiple chances to get out before we know the, the inevitable end of this that we know is going to happen. 
multiple chances to just go back home, live in a town free of taxation where she's a local star with her family again, and she turns them all down. Not the grand mission from before, but a chance to get back on the battlefield nonetheless. Joan began making private preparations for war, Ooh. relying on her notoriety to gather volunteers. <gasps> In fact, Joan was becoming interested in fighting those she saw as enemies of Christianity all over Europe, soon asking the English leave France and help her fight the Hussites, a pre-Protestant group that had broken with the Catholic Church. Oh, this is interesting. In, in Indie War. Joan arrived at the town named Combienne with her volunteer army and managed to sneak into the besieged city. There, she ran small attacks on the nearby English and Burgundian encampments. It was on one of these attacks that Burgundian forces planned an ambush, and they soon surrounded Joan and her army ooh, ooh. with 6,000 Burgundian soldiers. Oh, no. Joan and her volunteers fought off the English as the townspeople and other French soldiers retreated into the town. It's not entirely clear whether this was an act of valor or just a result of the situation as the governor of the town ordered the gate closed. Mm. Joan, who never actually engaged in combat, but rode on her horse carrying her banner, was grabbed from her horse by an archer. A Burgundian chronicler wrote, Then the maid, Joan of Arc, surpassing the nature of a woman, took on a great force and took much pain to save her company from defeat, remaining behind as the leader and as the bravest of the troop. But there fortune permitted for the end of her glory and for the last time that she would ever carry arms. An archer, a rough and very sour man, full of much spite because a woman, who so much had been spoken about, should have defeated so many brave men as she had done, grabbed the edge of her cloth of gold doublet, <laughs> doublet, <laughs> grabbed the edge of her cloth of gold doublet and threw her from her horse flat to the ground. Oh no. Joan would only surrender to the person in charge, assuming she would be ransomed back to Charles like a knight would have been at the time. She was, instead, kept by the Burgundians for many months as they decided how to leverage the most with her capture. She was moved to several prisons after escape attempts, including one where she jumped off a 75-foot tower into the soft ground of a dried moat. What? Wow. Oh my gosh. This may have been an attempt on her own life, as Joan feared imprisonment and torture, especially if she was sent to the English. She said she frequently prayed for death. Wow. On January 3rd, 1431, for the price of 10,000 francs, Joan was transferred to, oh God, Rouen. 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 Joan was transferred to Rouen for inquisition and trial by Bishop Couchant and the Catholic Church. Rouen was under English control but Joan was being tried instead by the church. Oh my god, the irony. Joan's trial was obviously highly politically motivated. She was, after all, the figurehead of the recent incredible French victories. If they could prove she was a heretic, not only would they get rid of Joan, but they could also ruin her reputation among the French. Even in imprisonment and during her trial, Joan continued to wear men's clothing. Hmm. This was, at least in part, for her own protection as she wouldn't be instantly identified as a woman, and the clothes had ties to keep them more secure and harder to remove by force. Joan's trial began on January 13, 1431, and instantly violated multiple rules of the church's own making. Hmm. The trial lacked enough evidence to proceed. It was financed by the English crown. Hmm. Joan was denied a lawyer. Hmm. The clergy involved in the trial as jurors 
weren't balanced with any pro-French. And Bishop... Couchon. Couchon, thank you. Bishop Couchon technically didn't have the jurisdiction over the case. Joan, of course, protested all of these inequalities to no avail. There were some members of the clergy who, at first, refused to cooperate. However, they soon capitulated when their lives were threatened. <laughs> Bishop Couchon sent many a theological trap for Joan as he questioned her relentlessly for weeks. The court was reportedly astonished at this supposed illiterate peasant girl's ability to navigate the intricacies of Middle Ages theology and each of Kushan's traps. As Joan defended herself, her heresy charges dropped from 70 to just 12. Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. I don't want to get sent to court for 12 heresy charges, but I mean, <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> With just her ability to debate and argue and speak, yeah. reduce it to 12 from 70 on you know, on an away game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. There were a few things Joan couldn't talk her way out of. One was the fact that she refused to talk about her communications with Charles and the exact nature of her visions. This greatly upset Kushan, who needed more details of her visions to prove it was a heresy. What details she did give were not good in the eyes of the church. See, the problem with Joan's visions is that she described holding the saints, and even at times when they interacted with earthly objects. This was strictly impossible according to the Bible. Only demons can manifest physically and wield objects. Huh. The other issue that sealed Joan's fate was what the church called her cross-dressing. Wearing men's clothes was strictly prohibited in Deuteronomy. For the cross-dressing to be a capital crime, however, it must be committed twice. So this was the first charge amounting to a warning. If Joan were to re-offend, then she could be put to death. The church stuck with the remaining 12 heresy charges and brought her out to the gallows in a graveyard. They read her the charges and said if she did not answer for them right now, she would be put to death immediately. Joan confessed she was to remain imprisoned by the church for the rest of her life. Oh my gosh. Hmm. So they basically scared her into a confession by threatening. If she didn't have an answer for the remaining mm -hmm. 12, they were just going to kill her right then. Mm -hmm. So she said, those 12 are real and admitted mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. To save her life because she knew yeah. that she would not be put to death upon confession. Right. Just unfortunately sentenced to life in prison. Yeah. After her confession, Joan's head was shaved and she was put back in women's clothes. What exactly happened next is uncertain. Joan was found in her cell back in her men's outfit. It's not clear whether she did this as an act of defiance or wanting to end her lifelong sentence. There were claims her dress was taken by the guards or an assault took place, and the only clothes Joan had left were men's clothes, or she was forced into the men's clothes by the guards. Oh, that's also heartbreaking. I know, it really is. <sighs> Joan did claim there was an attempted assault during her trial, arguing for her ability to continue wearing men's clothes while imprisoned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Whatever happened, Joan was found in men's clothes, and it was considered a relapse. According to Joan, her voices were angry that she had recanted out of fear, and it's possible her wearing the men's clothes was a deliberate decision. Mm. Because she had re-offended, Joan was to be put to death. On May 30th, 1431, Joan was burned at the stake. Sympathetic members of the clergy held crosses for her to see, and an English soldier carved a cross for her to hold as she was taken to the stake. Here, Joan did not recant, and instead called out the names of her saints and Jesus. They burned her body twice to prevent any relics from being recovered. Oh, man. 
I'm just like silent through this whole thing. I just can't even believe this is how this ends. I mean, I knew it was how it ended, but oh my God. The worst way. Yeah. The worst way. Uh, what a movie, man. After her death, the executioner said, quote, he greatly feared to be damned for he had burned a holy woman. Uh, so there were, you know, it wasn't, yeah. there were people sympathetic. There were people who believed her even on the English side. Yeah. Even the executioner. 22 years after Joan's death, the Hundred Years' War finally ended, although tensions and conflicts would continue between England and France for the next several hundred years. A retrial of Joan's case was opened after the war. This one involved clergy throughout Europe and over 100 witnesses. This trial cleared Joan's name and called her a martyr and implicated Couchon as a heretic himself for putting Joan to death. Too little, too late. They also reversed the cross-dressing conviction, saying Kushan had not considered the doctoral exceptions for that rule. Hmm. For instance, Joan's safety. Mm -hmm. In 1920, Joan was canonized as a saint. Her story became legendary and her name synonymous with the savior of France. Wow. Wow. This is quite the story. Jeez. So who exactly was Joan and where did her visions come from? Joan would have known of the recent history of the French and English confrontation and would have grown up hearing stories of female visionaries. Where did these saints come from? Long after her death, some doctors have tried to diagnose Joan with various mental illnesses, including epilepsy, migraines, and schizophrenia. Oh, okay. Whatever her condition may have been, Joan was not overtly mentally ill, as there are no accounts of her talking to her visions in public or seeing anything that wasn't visible to all parties present. Charles VII would have also been very sensitive to any type of perceivable mental illness, as his father was called Charles the Mad oh. and suffered from terrible mental illnesses until his death. Okay. Oh. Catherine was Joan's sister's name, and there was a statue of St. Margaret in the Dom Remy church. Okay. Joan would get defensive when pressed on exactly what the saints looked like. Joan was clearly an exceptional and unusual person, and she had an exceptional and unusual childhood. It's quite possible none of her visions were true, and Joan simply knew exactly how to play the game and created a plan based on the folklore and psyche of the people at the time. Right. At the beginning of her journey, when Joan told the soldiers at the garrison at Vaucouleur that all she wanted in life was to be home spinning wool with her mom and that she didn't want to go on a grand adventure and save the king and fight in wars, that was clearly a lie. Yeah. Joan didn't love spinning wool. Of course she wanted a great religious adventure and to literally be the liberator of France. Whatever Joan's motivations, the outcome was clear and her story inspiring to all across the world and across centuries. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that was great. That was really, really cool. Well, do you remember anything? No. No. Oh, for- <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I think, I mean, I don't know. I feel like this is such a cliche takeaway because I think, unfortunately, you just, as you get older too, like you realize you are your parents or like your grandparents and history just like continues to repeat itself over and over and over. And I think, especially mm. with John Lewis dying, I was like, holy shit, like he never left any sort of civil rights movement and he's only 80 and like his entire life like it was just like a cycle of racism Mm, his whole life so Mm. this story was so depressing and great because it's like she also was a badass woman and those people show up in history too but just that like arbitrarily things were so run by the church and sort of like this underlying sense of the bible controlling everything still and like in america we're still 
fighting against that tide of like, how do we separate that even today? And yeah. And that people often think that females are just like witches if they have a strong feeling about something. (laughs) (laughs) I, prior to that story, knew practically nothing about Joan of Arc Mm -hmm. um, or that period in history. And um, I I still do. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'd heard of this character from history, right? What? What did I know about her? I knew that she dressed as a man and then... Uh, went into battle and then later on was burned at the stake. That's like, that's kind of all I knew about her, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the biggest things for me out of the story were just how cool she was. Like, what a neat character that is. She just ran around being all heroic and like helping people, giving them their paycheck. And that's all even like beside whatever you might believe or not about her visions and stuff. This is just the like absolute facts. She went into battle and did awesome shit and the English were afraid of her. Like, that's so cool. And she was like 10. No, not really. She, but... Well, that might be a bit of a stretch, but right? she was she definitely was a kid. She was a kid, for sure, exactly. Under 18 the whole time, yeah. She probably had some questionable Twitter posts yes. back in the day. Oh, they just weren't able to find them. When she was 13 or 14, she, I, I think she would have had some really inappropriate jokes. Really inappropriate jokes. Seriously, <laughs> this, is a, this is a teenager. Yeah. Almost kind of sad to think, like, Will we have someone in the future of that sort of historical impact? Because people are like so short-lived. Greta. Greta Thunberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, good point. True. But who knows if she's like in her 30s going to be doing the same. She will be. Let's hope so. I mean, she's a witch for sure. For sure. She's for sure. (laughs) I don't know. It would have been funny. It would have been interesting to get like a Anne Frank style diary of Joan of Arc because- The Anne Frank diary, like the unedited one or whatever, you know, has a lot of interesting things in it that reveal a complicated person and, you know, kind of, kind of almost akin to having like a Twitter record where you're like, "Mm, Anne, I don't know. (laughs) It's a little questionable. (laughs) If we we could see her diary and just be like, what what are her actual plans here? We know how far does she want to go? Right. Yeah. Does she want to go have another, another crusade or something? She was a Hitler type. Yeah. What if? What if she was like See? a little, uh, like conquer the world? Yeah. Like she wasn't going to stop until. It kind of sounds like she was. She like honestly, honestly, good riddance. I don't know if it was like Hitler esque, but I think it it was a very serious like plan. Yeah, for the way that she conversion. was posturing, it didn't seem like she was gonna start being peaceful. It maybe seemed like she was ready to go further and do more. So I don't know. That's interesting. I guess. I mean, rest in peace. <laughs> exactly. May she rest in peace. Where do we land on Joan? She good, good or bad? What do you think? If left unchecked, do you think Joan would have become a tyrant and an oppressor of people in other places, or 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 do you think her voices maybe would have come back in and told her re- <laughs> reel it in? I think that eventually she would have crossed a line. If she like beat the shit out of a prostitute, like <laughs> that's on true. Her own, <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. But if we look at her just in her actual historic deeds, uh, she was great. Yeah. Just don't read her Twitter. Just don't read her Twitter. Don't read her Twitter. That's her show. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed. You can reach out at historiesajokepodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram at historiesajokepod. You can find us online at lavenderfingerproductions.com. 
let us know what history stories you want to hear next and we'll be back next week with a new story uh, thanks so much, guys. Any final thoughts? Well, you wrote Voo Cooler, so. Yeah, he did. It's true. We <laughs> also wrote Doofin. Okay, and so. History's a Joke podcast is supported by listeners like you. Find us on Venmo at History's a Joke.